Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Coordinated action. The Bank of England cuts rates. The UK government ramps up spending. Substantial hit. Cathay Pacific warns the first half of 2020 will be tough. And no blinking. Saudi Arabia escalating the fight. Orders Aramco to boost oil capacity. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Once again, to first move where March madness once again reigns on the global markets. I have to say, though, where madness reigns, support does follow. As I mentioned, the Bank of England slashing rates in an emergency measure today. That's helping Europe. But Wall Street, quite frankly, is not listening. Take a look at what we're seeing for futures at this moment. We are lower, as you can see, approaching some 3%. That's the open we're expecting. This after bumper gains. Yes, I said gains in yesterday's trading session. Oil not helping sentiment either. We've got prices down some 3%. But gains yesterday, stocks rallied in the last few hours of trading, ending up around 5% for the biggest one-day gain since December of 2018. I tell you that stat purely for context. We are simply yo-yoing. Major volatility here on a daily basis, up one day, down one day the next, sensitive to headlines and seeing knee-jerk reactions playing out in the market. Speaking of headlines, President Trump promising all sorts of support yesterday for airlines, the tourism sector, for oil firms, even throwing in a 0% payroll tax. The immediate question, of course, is what is actually feasible here? Never mind what's actually required to support the economy, given we simply don't know what the fundamental impact is going to be here. Take a look at Europe. We did see gains there bucking the trend. Actually, I'm showing you Asia first. Stocks there, as you can see, once again under pressure. Asia stocks closing lower. Australia in a bear market now too. Now we get to Australia. My apologies. Gains there helped by Actually, I'm just looking at it now. No, we had earlier gains and we've slipped lower. The Bank of England rate cut helped earlier, lent us some support, and now we've tilted into the red. It's the United States, actually, sentiment here that's dragging Europe lower, too. Big question, of course, is going to be what do we see from the European Central Bank tomorrow, the latest set to ease. The European Central Bank head, Christine Lagarde, reportedly told EU leaders late yesterday coordinated fiscal action is needed. She fears a 2008-style financial crisis if governments don't act. For now, it's simply markets that are acting up. Christine Romans joins us on this. Christine, the fundamental problem there is as fast as you look at it, markets are turning here and I, yep. I just made the mistake with Europe. We've had up one day, down the next with the, with the United States markets and Wall Street, of course. And the problem is we don't have fundamental backing. We can't judge yet what the impact is going to be. And while the caution flag is waving on the fundamentals, I think you're going to expect that action and reaction in the markets. It's really not that surprising. You're absolutely right to call it uh, yo-yoing in this market. And, you know, it makes, uh, it, you know, long 
long-term investors frustrated. Uh, it's an opportunity for day traders, I suppose. But the big picture here is that there are still new coronaviruses. We are all learning about social distancing. In the United States, they are closing schools. They are canceling concerts and all kinds of gatherings of people. That means any industries that rely on us going from one place to another and spending our money while we're together, those economies are grinding lower. In fact, uh, Goldman Sachs this morning saying the end of the bear market, the bull market rather, is upon us. This is what Goldman says. After 11 years, 13% annualized earnings growth, 16% uh, annualized trough to peak appreciation, we believe the S&P 500 bull market will soon end. Goes on to say there's acute stress in the real economy and the financial economy and puts an S&P 500 mid-year low at 2450 before what looks like a V-shaped uh, recovery uh, heading into later uh, this year and into next year. Uh, you know, but this is all pressure on earnings, a lot of uncertainty. I think up and down is going to be the way it goes with an emphasis on down. And critical to this, of course, and to your point about whether it's a V-shaped recovery or a U-shaped recovery and how long it takes, stimulus, support, leadership, action, whether it's quarantines, whether it's businesses, whether it's trying to lend some confidence to consumers, of course, pivotal to the U.S. economy. Leadership is what's required here, and we're seeing it sporadically. The Bank of England today, the government stepping up spending promises here in the United States, Christine. So far, those are only promises in this country. You know, there's a little bit of skepticism from some uh, in the Senate about the zero, uh, about the payroll tax holiday. There are others who think that it's more important to have paid sick leave. Uh, do you want to have bailouts for the leisure industries? Could there be political blowback for bailouts, for example, for the hotel industry, which would benefit the president uh, and his family? So this is now discussion and no consensus on stimulus in the U.S. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, you have a little bit of nervousness in the market here this morning. There's another discussion. If you did all that, would it just not make things worse, not necessarily turn things around and make them better? Meanwhile, not even 24 hours ago, the president was bashing the Fed again, saying it's the Fed who needs to stimulate. And that frustrated some market participants who want to see this gravitas and leadership and realism from the White House speaking with one voice, not casting blame and insults. Yeah, and speaking with one voice is it, what it seems we're seeing in the UK today, given what we've seen between the Bank of England, of course, and, and the UK government, we're simply not seeing that coordination. In fact, we're already seeing tension, at least in one direction, between the central bank and, and the government here. Christine, great to have you with us. Thank you so Thank much you. For, uh, for joining us. Now, speaking of a coordinated action, a double dose of stimulus, as I mentioned, in the UK, an emergency rate cut and the UK government ramping up spending here too. Anna Stewart joins us on this story. Anna, maximum impact is what Mark Carney said. And he talked about the coordination here between the central bank in the UK after years of crazy, it seems, over Brexit. It looks like the country getting its act together here. What did we hear in terms of government stimulus? Because I think that's yes. critical here. Because right now we are hearing from the budget, from the brand new Chancellor, new kid on the block, Rishi Sunak. And I have to say this budget, which is the first for a year, because yesterday the whole government was in paralysis, a new budget, but it's a corona budget. It is a very much an emergency budget and it attempts to vaccinate the UK economy against the economic effects of the virus. And it is closely, as he said, coordinated with the Bank of England, with Mark Carney with a big focus on protecting businesses and households from a supply-side shock as well as a demand-side shock. And there are lots of headline figures here. Overall, fiscal stimulus is being given here of £30 billion. That's nearly $40 billion. And it's a three-point plan. So to take you through it, 
Number one, they will give the NHS whatever resources are needed, whether that's in the millions or the billions. Secondly, for people that fall ill or sick in the UK and they're expecting uh, up to one fifth of the workforce to be off sick or in self-isolation at some point, they're going to make sure that statutory sick pay kicks in on day one rather than day four. They're also going to allow some smaller businesses to be able to get their refund of that for 14 days afterwards. Um, they're also going to allow for people that work in the gig economy, those who are self-employed, to get some sort of benefit quicker than they currently do to try again to sort of uh, soften the impact of having to take time off work. And particularly if you have to self-isolate when you don't even have symptoms. And thirdly, and this was possibly the, the most interesting one, uh, a big support system for SMEs in general, abolishing business rates for the smallest businesses, offering a lifeline for others, deferring tax payments. A huge focus on here, I think, just trying to bridge a potential cash flow gap for so many businesses that either have employees off sick, have supply side uh, effects of uh, supply side sort of um, supply chain disruptions, of course, and then in, in addition to those that simply don't have any consumer spending and are not seeing footfall in their shops, in their restaurants, in their cafes. Julia? Yeah, you raised such a great point. It's that gap. It's that period where if people are off sick, what do they do to pay the bills? Can they keep paying their mortgages for businesses the same? Can they continue to pay their bills if they're not seeing customers coming in store? Particularly for gig worker economies too. So for me, these measures are critical. I'm less excited and I see it more as symbolic perhaps that the, the central bank, the Bank of England, decides to cut rates, even if uh, that does send some kind of message that, look, we're trying to get funding, cheaper funding out to the real economy here. What it also poses questions for, for me as well, is the European Central Bank tomorrow. And what can the European Central Bank do? Because you're talking about many different nations that have to perhaps boost spending versus a central bank that stands there and gets sort of pressure and shouted at for not doing enough in these circumstances. And let's not forget the ECB governing council, which is hugely divided. So as they meet tomorrow, I think the market expectation is for another rate cut, pulling it further into negative territory. But as you said, we saw this with the Fed, and I think we're seeing it today, the Bank of England. The rate cut in and of itself isn't that helpful. That doesn't fix supply chain disruption. It doesn't get people spending more. It doesn't get people flying or traveling or increasing tourism, does it? It does help slightly with, you know, cheaper borrowing for banks. I think what will be interesting with the ECB and what we saw today with the Bank of England is the overall package. If they have a rate cut, do they combine it with some sort of extra liquidity into the banking system, something for these smaller and medium-sized businesses? So I think it really is the general package. But there is expectation for a rate cut. And if it's not there, I think we'll see more market turmoil tomorrow. Julia? Anna Stewart, great job. Thank you so much for that. Now, next driver, more distress signals from the airline industry. This time it's Cathay Pacific. Christy Lustout joins us on this story. Christy, these guys have been caught in a perfect storm. Hong Kong riots, the trade war, and now the coronavirus. Yeah, a perfect storm is right between the protests and the current outbreak. And it was a brutal second half of last year for Cathay Pacific. It posted this 28% fall in profits compared to the previous year after months of those anti-government protests scared away travelers and kept tourists away. And the airline's chairman is warning of a, quote, substantial loss for the first half of this year. It is all because of the coronavirus and it's not only Cathay Pacific, the global airline industry is suffering as passengers the world over 
canceled their travel plans, and governments imposed more and more travel restrictions. In fact, according to IATA, the entire sector could lose up to $113 billion in revenues this year. Now, South Korean media outlets, they earlier today were reporting that Korean Air is questioning its, quote, own survival in a memo to staff. Now, we asked Korean Air for comment, for a statement on this, and then the president of Korean Air told us this. Let's bring up the statement for you. Uh, quote, um, you know, our industry faces significant challenges now, and we're trying to minimize sacrifices of our employees, unquote. Uh, the crisis is being dealt, you know, all over the world, various airlines, including Cathay Pacific. How is Cathay addressing it? Well, first of all, it's slashing capacity. You know, it is slashing all flights by 65% in March and in April. Um, two weeks ago, uh, Cathay said that 75% of its staff would take unpaid leave, affecting around 25,000 employees. In fact, we've been talking to a flight attendant who has worked with Cathay Pacific for seven years. She enjoys her work there. She is taking the unpaid leave, but she is afraid that she's going to lose her job. And, and finally, Julie, I want to share with you an update. A 22-year-old Cathay Pacific flight attendant has tested positive for the coronavirus, she worked on a weekend flight from Madrid that carried an infected passenger um, from Dongguan, China. And just this latest infection really just drives home the impact, the brutal impact of this outbreak on Cathay Pacific. Julia. Yeah, and to your point, the whole, the global airline industry, just these massive capacity cuts. Christy Lustak, great to have you with us. Thank you for your insights there as well. All right, let's move on. Raising the stakes in the oil market standoff, Saudi Aramco says it's been told to boost production capacity to 13 million barrels a day. John Defterius joins us on this. John, clearly no one blinking to go back to our earlier conversation or a conversation on the show yesterday. I mean, the Russians have said, look, we can increase capacity too, but just how feasible is this for, for Saudi Aramco? I mean, it feels like years to get to these kind of levels. Can they do it? Uh, you'd, yeah, you'd, you'd be surprised, uh, Julia. I call it the all-in strategy. So it's uh, boosting production to 12.3 million barrels a day. That's going to be done with storage, adding 2.5 million barrels uh, next month, and then adding another half a million barrels of capacity by the end of the year. Uh, they've had this in the works uh, in terms of the paperwork and the strategy. Now they're going to deliver upon that. Uh, and now we found out in the last hour that the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, representing the UAE, adding another million barrels a day by April. So taking its production from 3 million to four. So if you do the math here, we had cuts of better than 2 million barrels right now in place of the end of March. Uh, that you have to presume is gonna be wiped away by the other producers like Russia coming back up with their production. And then this added capacity from Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi, and that's why it's having this impact on prices. By the way, we were up 3% in Asian trading today and now down better than 3%. That's a 6% swing uh, and catastrophic if you think of the 30% loss now uh, over the week. The IEA executive director, uh, Fatih Birol, somebody I know very well, told Richard Quest last night, uh, this will damage the other OPEC players from Latin America to Africa. But more importantly, during a period of the coronavirus, when you need people to come together and collaborate, uh, they are indeed clashing at the wrong time. And, and on that note, I would just add one other point. Uh, Saudi Arabia has the chairmanship of the G20 in 2020. Uh, this could uh, cause some reputational damage if you crash the oil market right now and be seen to be hurting economies uh, on oil prices.
places when indeed you need help the most. It's kind of a risky strategy, but the Saudis are going full frontal on it. But to your point, perhaps they're doing it at the perfect time because this means maximum leverage and, and the collateral damage here, of course, is huge. If it is, you're playing one heck of an oily game of chicken here and unfortunately everyone gets fried. What yes. about the, the Saudi Aramco IPO here? Are the Saudis just saying, you know what, those interests, the diversification of the economy, all that goes out the window right now because we're going to prove a point and it's a much longer term strategic point that we're making here. Well, this is uh, going to require a little bit of nuance because you have the, the listing, of course, in Riyadh, and that is below the IPO price. So that's a risk to domestic investors and other Gulf sovereign funds who decided to go all in. Number two, what happens to the international strategy? They said they were starting to work on that again. And it's hard to see you have international buyers if oil prices are going to be crashing. I also thought it was interesting in the statement that came out from Amin Nasser, the CEO of Aramco, they were instructed by the Minister of Energy that burns right through a firewall as a publicly traded company. Uh, and I think it's a very important point. And there is precedent here, uh, Julia. 1980s, they punished Russia for going into Afghanistan and des destabilizing the Middle East. 1990s, Venezuela was uh, overproducing. So Saudi Arabia did exactly the same thing. Alexander Novak, the minister of energy for Russia, basically said this is not the right time for this. They don't really want to boost production. And there's a back channel to Novak. But right now, Nobody's blinking in the Gulf. You got Saudi Arabia and the UAE all in. But your point there, JD, is so important. Saudi Aramco is weaponized here. So for global investors, don't ever forget it. If indeed mm. one day this thing IPOs. I said it, not you. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> All right, let me uh, bring you up to speed with some of the other stories that we are following around the world. Former Vice President Joe Biden beating Senator Bernie Sanders in Tuesday's Democratic presidential primaries. Biden won four of the six states that voted yesterday, including the key battleground of Michigan. I want to thank Bernie Sanders and his supporters for their tireless energy and their passion. We share a common goal. And together, we'll defeat Donald Trump. We'll defeat him together. We are a step closer to restoring decency, dignity, and honor to the White House. That's our ultimate goal. Yes. CNN projects Sanders will win in North Dakota. Washington state has not yet been called. The shamed movie producer Harvey Weinstein will be sentenced today in New York for sexual offenses, including third-degree rape. The 67-year-old faces up to 29 years behind bars. Weinstein was acquitted of predatory sexual assault, but faces further charges in Los Angeles. After the break, Adidas counting the cost of the coronavirus in China. We'll hear from the CEO of the sportswear giant. And of course, more analysis on the market stocks set to tumble once again as we open up the markets. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move on the Countdown to the Market Open this morning. We're joined by Jason Dreho. He's head of America's Asset Allocation at UBS Global Wealth Management. Great to have you with us. I can get my teeth in gear. More volatility up 
one day down the next. We just have to expect that. I think for the time being, this is going to kind of the, the reality of what was the markets react every day to new news on the virus, potential policy stimulus. So it's going to be volatile for the time being. Goldman Sachs said today they think the bull market is over. Do you agree? Do you think we're going to head to a bear market? Because we've been teetering at that 20% pullback for the last few sessions. So if we define a bear market as you're down more than 20% yes. from the peak, today we could be closed down around 18%. Look, again? We, again. So we could end up you know, easily kind of tipping past 20%. So technically we could sort of meet that threshold. How long we stay below that, I think that remains to be seen because things could improve on the virus front just in the next you know, few weeks. That would give the markets comfort and then things could kind of rally back. There's a lot of uncertainty. So I think it's likely we probably below 20%, even almost an intraday. But how long we stay there, that's the big question. But you're not willing to make the bold call at this stage that, that the run high that we've seen for the last 11 years is, is formally over. For, you still think a dip and then perhaps a recovery. So I think for anyone to make that call, you're basically making a call on the virus. And none of us as investment professionals have that expertise. So I, think, I agree. You know, so I think we can't make that call. The economic fundamentals right now don't warrant it. But that's, you know, there's a different factor driving the markets So today. can we separate those two things? One, and I agree with you, we can't can't quantify what the virus impact is going to be, but we can look at the underlying fundamentals of the economy and we can also start to gauge perhaps what the impact of stimulus, whether it's rate cuts or whether it's government support. Where does that leave us? So I think, you know, first quarter, this U.S. GDP will be okay, maybe around 1%. Global GDP will probably be down about 1% relative to the expectations at the start of the quarter. So let's say instead of 3.3, it could be 2.3. We're seeing recovery in Asia and China. It's sort of normalized and sort of bounce back in the second quarter. But the U.S., the implications are only being felt. I think we've heard just in the past, you know, 24 or 48 hours, a number of conferences, events being canceled. People are starting to curtail their activity. The impact's going to show up in the second quarter. Um, so that there we can grow maybe zero percent, maybe even negative. Again, it just depends on how bad things get. Beyond that, that's the open question. How much stimulus do we get? Congress is working right now with the president to, to figure that out. It could be as much as 1% of GDP, which helps, but for it to kick in, it's not going to be until later in the second quarter, so not until things have already slowed more significantly. You've done some analysis, too, on some of the pullbacks, the, the bear markets, as we've been discussing since the Second World War, and the, the level of drawdown or the pullback in markets that we've seen, and it's generally around 35%. A balanced portfolio and we'll define what that is, makes a huge difference. Talk us through that. So we think of a balanced portfolio as a mix of different asset classes, but at its core, it's stocks and bonds. And 60-40 is sort of a classic portfolio of 60% equities, 40% bonds. So we may dip into a bear market for, for equities, but bonds this year have done fantastic because interest rates have fallen so much. So for example, if you bought like longer dated treasury bonds in the US, they're up over 20, almost 30% this year. So that 60-40 portfolio that looks bad on the equity side, maybe down almost 20%, the bond side could be up at least 10%. Yes. So the mix in means only down maybe in the neighborhood of like 8 or 9%. Still down, but not nearly as bad as the equity market. There's a message in there somewhere for pension funds and for people looking at their pension funds as well, I think, as well, not to look at what we're seeing. Diversify, of... diversify, diversify is the key message. Yeah. What else should investors be doing at this moment? So the advice that we give to people right now is, one, don't panic. I mean, we get bear markets, we get recessions. We had volatility similar to this at the end of 2018, and even two years ago in February of 2018. Usually we get through this okay. And we forget very quickly as well. We, we have short memories, unfortunately. The second thing is 
you know, control the things you can and don't sort of focus on things we can't control. The virus, how that it plays out, none of us can control that, but we can control our own portfolios. We can make sure that it's properly balanced. If this is really painful for you for right now, it's altering your lifestyle in some way because your portfolio is down, you probably didn't have the right financial plan. So think about what is the plan you need going forward. Uh, That's an interesting point. So it's a key point, like you can rebalance. Uh, maybe you can use this as a time to tax lost harvest, for example. Uh, you may have or should have had a plan to say, if the market sells off 10% or 20%, maybe I go in and buy if I've been waiting to buy. People were talking about, I want to buy the dip. Well, we have a dip right now. So you have to have a discipline plan. Those are things you can control. And ultimately, if you do that, in the long term, you'll be better off uh, because the markets will bounce back at some point. It's a, it's a question of when. Great advice. If you're panicking now, there's something wrong. Jason, great to have you with us. Jason Dreho there, the head of America's Asset Allocation at UBS Wealth Management. I got it back the second time. Let me give you a look at what we're seeing. We are expecting, once again, steep losses when the U.S. markets open in a few moments' time. We've got you covered. More analysis to come. Stay with us. You're with First Move. The market opens next. first move live from the New York Stock Exchange where the U.S. Army is ringing the opening bell this morning though it is a weak start as expected we were predicting losses of uh, some two and a half to three percent we're looking at just over two and a half percent there's the picture so we're giving back more than half of the five percent gains that we saw from yesterday it's just sheer volatility up one day down the next as we've been describing as I mentioned earlier Goldman Sachs believes the long-running bull market might be at an end here you just heard from uh, UBS wealth management there though uh, Jason Dreho which just basically argued guesswork at this stage we simply don't know European shares also have been mixed throughout this session we had gains earlier look we've now jumped into positive territory for the uh, German DAX and the Paris Cat Caron it's so tough to predict it's a minute by minute thing so I'm reticent to give you any analysis really it's just simply about volatility also volatility is the story in the all markets too we've got losses of around three and a half percent this of course as we've been describing Saudi Aramco is readied for production hikes at Saudi Aramco of course their giant oil producer Claire Sebastian joins me now Claire I've written a bullet point to myself and it's just one and it just says volatility and that's what we're seeing yeah, Julia, another day in, in this trend of alternating between big gains and big losses. We're not uh, right now at the worst point that we saw in the future session. So things are sort of uh, at, a, at a moderate level so far. But it'll be interesting to see which individual shares are moving. I don't know if we can pull up the, the 30 stocks on the Dow. Because what we saw on Monday was that some of the, the sort of consumer staples, the likes of, you see it there, Walgreens is flat, United Health, uh, healthcare companies were, were some, of the worst, some of the least bad losses that we saw on Monday. Uh, that reversed yesterday, uh, but we're seeing again today that those sort of more consumer-stabled stocks are the ones that are faring the best of all, and then the likes of Boeing, Caterpillar, uh, and the banks down again today. So this is, uh, you know, the volatility is set to continue. I think the markets are going to continue to move on the psychology of this, uh, the, 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 the prospect of stimulus, the lack of detail uh, around that in the U.S., uh, and that is what we're going to continue to see, Julia. It's very hard to sort of put a, 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 a real stamp, a real point of analysis on this while we're in 
in this sort of up and down situation. But it's interesting to note that Goldman Sachs report you were talking about, they say uh, that their uh, forecast for the S&P 500 for the midpoint of this year is 24.50. That's uh, sort of 15% or so uh, down from where we are right now. So that is a pretty sobering outlook. Yeah, and you raise a great point as well about looking at specific sectors and perhaps those that have been so incredibly beaten up, Mm. like the airline stocks, for example, the financials have taken a pounding, the energy stocks, you can see them bounce back briefly in a session and then they lose more ground the next day. It's so tough to predict beyond the broader themes that we've been talking about now for, for many days. Speaking of taking precautions, though, here, I know you've been looking at what some of the banks in particular have been doing simply to try and protect the workforces as best they can, separating workers and shifting them to different locations. Talk us through what you've been finding. Yeah, you know, even as the uh, financial institutions grapple with this uh, historic levels of volatility, they are facing a major logistical challenge as well, Julia. We've seen uh, banks having to to shift to backup plans in the wake of 9-11, Hurricane Sandy when Lower Manhattan was cut off, and they are starting to do the same thing now. Now, I spoke to uh, Ken Benson, who's the uh, CEO of the Securities Industry and Financial Markets Association. That's sort of an advocacy group for the industry. He told me what is going on right now. We have firms that are testing their redundant sites and sending uh, uh, you know, large swaths of their uh, traders and, and other uh, uh, bankers to work from home to make sure that their systems work. So uh, I, I wouldn't say firms are, are fully executing, uh, but they are certainly executing parts of it and testing other parts to be prepared if this turns into a full-blown pandemic. Certainly, uh, Julia, banks seem to be ramping up those efforts. We've seen a couple of cases uh, confirmed on Wall Street, and we've already seen uh, some regulatory relief. FINRA is the, the, the Wall Street regulator. They have waived some rules on supervision to allow for working from home for traders. Yeah, and I believe some of the big bank CEOs are at the White House today as well, including some of the tech leaders too. So lots of discussions taking place. Claire Sebastian, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. We're going to take a break here on First Move. But coming up, the company that says its experimental coronavirus vaccine is close to clinical trials. We'll speak to the scientist in charge after this. more than 120,000 cases of the coronavirus worldwide with no sign of the contagion slowing. The race is on to find a vaccine. Novavax is a clinical stage vaccine company that says it's close to phase one trials. Gregory Glenn, president of research and development at the company, joins me. He's previously led research into SARS and Ebola vaccines. Gregory, fantastic to have you with us. Just explain at what stage you're at and what this means to us. Yeah, thank you for your interest. So it might be worth just pausing for a minute to think about how a vaccine might work first, and then that will explain the the work we're doing. So these coronaviruses, these spikes, the spikes are essentially a protein that allows the virus to attach to a human cell, almost like a spaceship docking at the International Space Station. So our, our goal is to make that protein, inject it, induce an immune response to the spike, that immune response in the form of an antibody will block that docking and prevent infection. So our task is to to make a spike protein that is very properly folded, it's functional, looks just like the virus. Of course, it's we never touch the coronavirus. We are making a recombinant vaccine. So we engineer 
So we got the sequence from uh, China approximately January 10th. We then engineer a system to make that protein. Uh, again, we just read the, the virus uh, genetic sequence from the internet. We then synthesize a gene, we put it into a cell, that cell makes the protein. So that's a, uh, that's a you know, modern process, I would say. It's our time. Uh, it can be engineered very carefully to make a functional vaccine. So we've done that. We actually made about 20 different candidates. Uh, we down-select based on their ability to bind that receptor, induce a good immune response, and we're now in the process of, of working to scale that up uh, to support a clinical trial. So how soon could you, do you think, have a vaccine that's ready for human trials? And then I'm going to jump forward again, perhaps be ready for more widely use or more wide use? Yeah, that's, that is the question. That's a very good question. That's what I, my team is obsessed with. So I think we're going to be in human trials in the next month or so. Um, and that is a, what we call a phase one trial, where the, the, uh, we in, inject a limited number of people, demonstrate it's safe, and really importantly, in the case of a vaccine, those trials are extremely informative because you can measure the immunity and you can project through a number of, of means that it might work, and that, that would be, uh, you know, that'll be an important marker. Now, you know, the goal is to try to, to get to the, the, the sort of testing that really proves it works as soon as possible. And we're working very vigorously to compress those time frames. I can tell you, the US FDA, we've been in conversations with them. They're very constructive. Uh, we talked to the NIH. Um, so that is that, you know, our goal is to try to make this vaccine in time. And what we see, we may have a different perspective from what people see today. You know, the, this is a, um, it's important, it's safe, and it's, it really has proof that it will work. Uh, so that, there's a lot of work to be done. We're looking forward. We think that now the virus has seeded the world. And, you know, frankly, what we're seeing is very, very, you know, daunting and important to, to respond to. But we're more concerned about a second wave. So you can imagine the virus is now seeded throughout the globe. If it's a seasonal virus which goes away in the summer, it will come back, roaring back, much more widespread. Critical. And we'd like to have a vaccine in time for that, uh, that event, if it's at all possible. So, we, so are, we're working. We, are, we are talking hopefully late 2020, and sorry to interrupt, but this for me is so important because there are fears of, of, of a mutation. And I want to go back to, to what you were saying about the spikes why it's called a coronavirus and the crowns that we see on, on the protein. You've learned with your work, I know with MERS and, and SARS, about trying to develop a vaccine that's cross-protective, that, that can learn and it isn't just specific to one form of coronavirus, but if that virus mutates, it can be cross-product. How close and able are we to create a vaccine like that? Well, that's really, that is actually a great question. I mean, I, my motto internally is let's create a vaccine for the common cold and the uncommon cold. So coronaviruses, as you probably know, are common. Uh, and so the spike protein mechanism infection is common. And there's a lot of what we call homology. There's a lot of uh, similarity because these, these proteins have a function uh, they can't mutate too much or they'll lose a function. Think of a syringe. If it was pink or yellow or green, it wouldn't matter. But if it didn't have a plunger, 
it wouldn't work. So the viruses have places they can change and not change. I will say we encounter this same phenomena with flu, and our company has been focused on a better flu vaccine. You know, there have been uh, roughly 40 million U.S. flu cases. You know, compare that to the number of coronavirus cases, and roughly 40,000 deaths already this season with flu. And it, we face the same problem. The virus in one year mutates, changes, and so the vaccine from the past year may not cover it. We are just about to unblind a phase three trial and the focus of our technology is to make the kind of vaccine where it would, would not matter so much if the flu uh, virus is mutated from year to year because we have actually have what we call those conserved proteins in our vaccine. Our immune response has recognized that. And so you could have a vaccine that, that was you know, using the sequence from a virus in the past year that may have changed and that, that still works. And that's what we've demonstrated in our early phase one and two trials with our influenza vaccine. So we're about to unblind into this quarter a phase three uh, trial that should lead to licensure of a new flu vaccine, a better flu vaccine, which I think is needed. This is so key. Gregory, we will get you back to discuss this. Please keep me posted and you and I can tell are going to talk offline. I spent a lot of time reading biology books last night. Gregory Glenn, President of Research and Development at Novavax. Thank you once again. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, let me bring you up to speed with today's boardroom brief. Fiat Chrysler temporarily closing some of its plants in Italy as authorities react to the most severe coronavirus outbreak outside of China. Fiat says the stoppages will allow intensive cleaning to take place. More than 630 people in Italy have died as a result of the coronavirus outbreak. Adidas stock falling steeply after its dire warning on the effect of the virus. For the first quarter, it expects more than a billion dollars worth of lost sales in greater China alone. CEO Kasper Rorsted told me the fundamentals of the business are strong and that they will weather this storm. What we're seeing right now in China is what uh, the estimate we're done between 800 million to a billion for China for this quarter is uh, we believe is very realistic because there's only two and a half weeks left at this stage. What we're not projecting is what's coming in the future, and I don't think anybody can, and that's why we're very clear on we're reporting on what we have seen. We're not you know, giving a forecast as what's going to happen in the second quarter. However, I would say is the fundamentals hasn't changed at all. The fundamentals for the sporting goods industry is, is still very, very good, despite the vir you know, virus. I'll come back to the underlying fundamentals because I do think your forecast is important to discuss here. But, but China is 20% of your business and they are doing their best to get back up and running. You'd already suggested you could see a 80 to 85% hit to, to activity into the, to the business there. What are you seeing as of now? How, how capable are they of, of getting back up and running? And particularly for you specifically, how are you managing and what are you seeing? So we are seeing China coming back on track. We're seeing manufacturing up. Most of our factories are completely up and running. But the demand for our products or sporting goods products as such, of course, is coming at the end of the chain. And that is what we're, of course, seeing. We're seeing a delay compared to food or beverage products. The other an obvious question to ask here, I think, would be Europe. There's a lot of expectation building that perhaps the European Central Bank can do something. As a, as a business who's headquartered in Europe, what do you want to see in terms of stimulus here? Can that help as a business leader? What's your view here? 
So having been around in 2008 also, it's a very different challenge compared to the financial crisis in eight, because in, in 2008, you had a high price for money and companies were running out of cash. Today, most strong companies, including ours, are cash rich. The price for money is very low. We have no debt. We generate $2 billion in cash flow every year. So, frankly, we've never been you know, stronger as a company. The only thing that we would like to see is, of course, a stimulus around the consumer. But right now, the consumer is concerned. Uh, I'm certain there are some mid-tier companies in Europe that have a different financial position. But I'm just saying the fundamentals of driving stimulus into the market are just totally different compared to 2008 for the reasons I just mentioned. You know, I think a lot of this as well is the fear factor, the misinformation that we're all dealing with. And that goes to the heart of consumer behavior, to, to your point, too. I believe as a company, you're also dealing with a case yourself. Can you just talk to me about the measures that you've implemented and, and how we separate perhaps some of the, the fear of dealing with this from the fact and the realities of, of being a worker and of, of being a business and, and carrying on as best you can? So as a global company, we deal with the facts that we get in and we report the facts into our organization. We have a global task force that meets every day. Any incident that happens will communicate to our workforce. We have you know, completely open line into our head of HR. People can send emails. We have a very you know, comprehensive uh, package that describes to our employees what they can expect from us. We've had an incident last week. What happened was that that person had been in contact with 26 people. The 26 people left the company. They underwent tests. Those who had a negative test came back. Those who didn't take a test have a quarantine for two weeks and they come back. And I think the important part as a leader in a company and as a large company is just being totally transparent to your employee base about what is happening and what are you going to do should an incident you know, happen. Because all companies, it's going to happen to all companies. And I think people just expect to be dealt with as grown-ups and they want transparency and they want clarity in the message. And over time, you know, people get used to the environment. Right now, most people are concerned. Will it happen, in, will it happen to me and what are the impacts? It's great advice. Communication here and openness, I think, is, is key. Now, I know you want to talk about the underlying business. You began with it. You said it at the beginning. Look, talk to me about the underlying business here, because that looks pretty solid as far as these numbers show. As I said, we're 19 was a record year in all levels, 6% top line growth, 15 bottom line, 34% online growth, 15 in China. And really the fundamentals for the sporting goods industry has not changed with or without the coronavirus. You have the move to a much more leisure style lifestyle. You have people are moving and doing more sports. And those elements will not change. They might be delayed because of the coronavirus, but everybody is going to move on the journey or continue on the journey. So the way we look upon it is we think this is a temporary you know, impact to our business. But we don't think that it will have any strategic impact to our business. And that's why we're also taking a very clear position. We'll continue to invest in the future as this is not happening. And then we'll deal with the daily events as this happened because nobody can project will it be you know, one quarter, two quarters or four, six quarters. But that's why we're so optimistic about the sporting goods business. And that's why we're so optimistic about our position in Europe or the US or Asia. No one can predict, and that's what markets are struggling with. More after this. Oh, welcome back to First Move this morning and a look at how markets on Wall Street are trading at this moment. We continue to sit around these levels, the Dow off some 3%. The Nasdaq, actually, the relative outperformer, lower by some 2.5%. Remember, this follows 5% gains 
for the U.S. majors in yesterday's trading session as the volatility, the choppiness continues. Also take a look at the oil market because we are seeing energy stocks just among the losers in the session today. We're off the lows, I have to say, for the energy markets, but again, losing around 3%, as you can see here. This after Saudi Arabia ordered Saudi Aramco, the big oil producer there, to increase production capacity, as John Defteris was explaining to us earlier. So just one of the other additional concerns that investors are dealing with here. Claire Sebastian joins me now. You can take your pick, Claire, of the individual issues, whether it's the airline sector. We continue to hear from more airlines cutting capacity here, the energy sector and all pressure wobbles, and of course, the ongoing uncertainty over the coronavirus. Uh, I called it a perfect storm earlier, but it's an imperfect storm, clearly. Yeah, it's interesting to look at, at oil prices falling today, Julia, because we just got uh, CPI inflation numbers for the U.S., uh, and they are already showing that they're being restrained by lower oil prices, which, of course, were falling significantly even before we heard of this price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia. So it looks like uh, those lower oil prices will continue to restrain inflation, and that, of course, strengthens the case uh, for the Fed to move even lower on interest rates. The market is, of course, pricing in another big cut at that Fed meeting, which is happening uh, a week today, but it Despite the expectation, of course, as you've been saying, of monetary stimulus and of fiscal stimulus and the fact that we're seeing this in a coordinated fashion today in the UK, it's already been happening in other countries. The market simply, if you look at it now, 800, I think we're at session lows now, uh, are just not finding a reason to buy. And I think, you know, certainly if you talk to Goldman Sachs based on their report today, we're, we're just going to continue to see this. Yes, they're saying the uh, bull market here is over. But to your point, we see a pop higher and people see it as an excuse to sell, it seems, rather than uh, to dip your toes back in. Claire Sebastian, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for that. Now, on a quick programming note, CNN will have special coverage of My Freedom Day throughout the day. We will hear from young people all over the world in a half-hour special program. That airs at 12.30 p.m. in New York, 4.30 p.m. in London. It's not too late to be part of the global celebration. Tell us, what does freedom mean to you? And you can share on social media using the hashtag MyFreedomDay, a great thing to focus on at times of great uncertainty. That just about wraps it up for the show. We'll be back in a couple of hours' time, but for now, you've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.